You're listening to Four at the Back with Joe, Maz, Neil and Pete, where we look back on some of our favourite football sides from the Premier League era. Each week we'll be digging into the archives to look at some of the most memorable teams in both English and world football. We'll have the greats, the overachievers, the heroic near misses and the catastrophic failures to have graced the game over the last 30 years. So what are you waiting for? Turn your collar up like King Eric, grab your replica Mitre Ultimax, relive your youth and let's go with Four at the Back. Before there was Huddersfield and Bournemouth, before Wigan, before Bradford and even before Swindon Town, there was Wimbledon FC. One of the most famous minnows of the English game who captured the FA Cup by beating the dominant team of the 1980s and then surpassed that by punching above their weight in the top flight. They may have had the lowest budget in the league and they may have even been technically homeless for most of the 1990s, but they were nevertheless a fixture in the top half of the Premier League for much of its early history. Today we're talking about Wimbledon FC, the crazy gang. Now, I'm going to let Neil and Maz take over this for a bit, because when I got into a football, Wimbledon were already reasonably well established as a top flight side. But you guys will have lived through the rise of the club and experienced that whole thing where they were new and fresh and uh, proposition through those last days at Plough Lane and the real myth of the crazy gang. So why don't you guys start us off? Well, I mean, I think the, the, the 88 FA Cup final was really, well, it's one of my first big football memories, actually, I think. That that game, you know, Liverpool just absolutely peppering shots at, you know, at Dave Besant's goal. Um, isn't it Aldridge misses the penalty that Besant saves? And, you know, the Laurie Sanchez header. Um, and it was, you know, it was in the days when the FA Cup genuinely, genuinely really meant something. And they were such big outsiders to win that game. So... Yeah, it was pretty incredible. And I think the fact it was so romantic was because those players had largely gone all the way through the divisions with them. So it wasn't just that they'd, you know, they'd come up in, you know, in four or five years and and, and it had been a meteoric rise into the first division, you know, which which it was. But some of those players had been there in non-league and was and were, were still playing at the top flight at the end of it, you know. Someone, I mean, to like put, it, Dennis Wise. put it into, you know, a more modern day perspective, it, 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 it's like 11 Jamie Vardy's, isn't it? it it's it, it's a team of Vardy's. And, you know, I grew up in I grew up in South London. So Wimbledon is is very dear to my heart, even as a as an Arsenal fan. The very first game that I went to was. Uh, Wimbledon versus QPR at Plough Lane in 1987. So it's uh, it's something special for me, you know. Before I ventured across the river to watch Arsenal far more often than <laughs> was probably healthy in in my in my mid-teens, you know, 
my, my football trips, you know, to, to see it live revolved around uh, Wimbledon, like I say, so first game at Plough Lane. And then, you know, I, I saw them quite a lot, quite often at uh, Selhurst Park when they moved in with Palace. And it was, it, re- it really felt big time because, you know, Palace, you know, they, they, as they still are today, were yo-yoing all all over the place. So sometimes, sometimes in a rele- relegation battle, sometimes in a promotion battle. But you know, they had a a more established fan base uh, 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 around around the area. You know, whereas Wimbledon, you know, they'd come from nowhere and they were suddenly this this uh, Division One team as it as it was at the time. And you know, it, it was. Everyone got behind them. Everyone loved them. The crazy gang were just fantastic. And, you know, when you look back now at the players that are in that team, you can see why there's so much, so much character in them. But it's it's amazing just that, that you got these guys together at the same time. I mean, is it pure luck that these guys just came together and rose you know, to, to that level, or was it a fact that whatever magic was going on at Wimbledon made these guys that good and took them to that level? Yeah, the fact that, you know, a lot of them had careers, you know, post-Wimbledon as well, didn't they? I mean, I mean, obviously, Terry Phelan was playing for, you know, for good teams in the Premier League in those early days, the Premier League, like Man City, Chelsea, Everton, you know, he has he has a sort of you know a very good career as a kind of yeah one of those first players to, to to pioneer that wing back role. Actually, I think yeah. you know um, I watched a load of highlights recently of that kind of very weird um, Glenn Hoddle Chelsea team, which is kind of you know like bringing in Hullet, but then also having like all these random British footballers, and and uh, and he was very good for that team. Um, you know, obviously Dennis Wise would would go on to yeah. be a legend of the Premier League and, and, and play for England, which, you know, kind of if you'd said that when he was, you know, a kid breaking through in this Wimbledon team, I think he probably wouldn't have been taken too seriously. Um, Winterburn, course, Nigel Winterburn, of course, who won, won the whole lot with Arsenal after his one balls journey. And uh, and John Scales, of course, you know, a big part of that Spice Boys team we talked about um, last season. So, yeah, you've got, you've got a, an awful lot of... Um, of players, you know, not to mention Vinnie Jones, who'd, uh, you know, rack up all kinds of uh, all kinds of clubs as a as a midfield enforcer, and then of course uh, go on and break Hollywood as well. Uh, so they were, you know, they really were something else. Yeah, John Fashnew was your English number nine. Um, Terry Gibson was a a good player feeding off the scraps for, from Fashnew, but I guess they were quite famous for their playing style at that point as well because they had you know, a series of managers that played that very route one style, you know, so going from Dave Bassett to Bobby Gould um, and they, they both played very, very direct. Um, And I suppose it was a a time period when quite a few um, less fashionable English teams had gained a bit of success through what you might term long ball football or kick and rush. Um, and you know, like earlier in the in the eighties, you'd had Watford under Taylor had had played that way. So I mean, they were as famous for that as anything else. But 
I guess the Wimbledon that we're going to be talking about as this goes forward is one that started to break away from from that mould under Joe Kinnear and actually ended up playing some, certainly for the time, you know, pretty progressive stuff. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's the evolution, isn't it? You know, they were that that team and notoriously that team for a good long time, even into the into the Premier League era as that that rough and ready team. You, you know, you, you didn't want to go away to Wimbledon, no matter where they their home was, you know, because big, strong lad. I mean, you know, Vinny Jones, <laughs> notorious for that, you know, fashion, fashion the bash. And, you know, they were <laughs> they they were a very hard team. Let's put it that way. Even the little guys like Dennis Wise, they knew how to, they knew how to put an elbow in and a foot in and some studs up and and all sorts. When back in the days when you wouldn't get sent off just for thinking about it. So you know it was it, it was a team, but that they they certainly captured the imagination of of everyone around. And you know the cup final against Liverpool was. You know, as Neil said, it was such a huge deal back then, the FA Cup. You know, especially you're talking about a time where there was no European qualification. So that was literally it. <laughs> you were the league champions or you were the FA Cup winners. And and that, that's all that was going, going for you at that time. So for a small team like Wimbledon to, you know, come from nowhere, make the Premier League and then beat Liverpool in the FA Cup was just, Humongous, and you know those players. You know they they rose a level. Dave Bisson as well after that miraculous, miraculous uh, final performance uh, went on to higher things as well. So you know, yeah, it, it was fantastic. But you know, as you rolled into the nineties, they uh, the mid nineties, they they you know they became an established Premier League team, and a really good one at that, and had good players coming through and had suddenly got to the point where they had the ability to, you know, really retain higher level players and, you know, go out and buy players, which, you know, they didn't have insane amounts of money here, but, you know, they they were competing for a little bit and it was a really fun time to go. And, you know, we're talking about a time now where I had uh, friends who were Wimbledon season ticket holders and, you know, as a kid, if you couldn't get a free ticket when schools were giving them away, which happened quite often, you could literally rock up on the day and pay five pounds as a kid for a, a Premier League <laughs> football ticket on the door, you know, without even thinking about would I get in? It, yeah, absolutely. You'd get one. So, yeah, it was it, it was a really good time and a really fun time to be a football fan in South London because you could just you know, visit pretty easily and, and watch some really good football because, you know, they had in that mid-90s a lot of very, very good footballers. I've heard as well that you would turn up at the uh, Wimbledon games during that run and because of that atmosphere, it's one of the only Premier League grounds where you would see a kaleidoscope of other teams' kits in the home end. Um, I, but I suppose we're talking about the... You know, the idea of playing away at Wimbledon and, and their home and so on. Uh, before we get to the Premier League in 1991, they have to relocate from Plough Lane to Groundshare with Crystal Palace. And this leads to them being the homeless Premier League club throughout the rest of, of the decade. And uh, you could argue it probably eventually is what prompts them the move away from London. Um, 
seven miles might not sound an awful lot when we consider some of the relocations that we uh, have seen subsequently and the kind of relocations that you come across in American sports, let's say. But what did that mean to to Wimbledon to no longer be playing in in the borough of Wimbledon, playing in is it Merton instead? And just that move of seven miles, what did that do to Wimbledon as a as a club? It's Croydon, Selhurst. Um, I was probably a little bit too young to really get a grasp of that, to be honest with you. I, you know, it, it's not far. It, it, it's really not far. You know, it, it's Merton is literally right next door to Wimbledon. And I went to school in Merton and it was more Palace fans who were at Selhurst every week anyway. There, So you're talking about it's it's not like Arsenal have been kicked out of the Emirates and moved in with Tottenham. You know, you're talking about two teams uh, at different, you know, that, that don't have an intent drive. Right? I, I guess it's the fact that Wimbledon came out of nowhere and they, you know, because of that, I think they were generally well liked in, in the area. And you wouldn't hear people going on about Wimbledon. You'd laugh at them because they didn't have a kit sponsor and stuff like that at points. But, you know, I, I, I don't think there was any need or it's not like, they were having to go that far. So, yes, I am sure probably those diehard Wimbledon fans that had watched them come up from the conference um, and a crossover into Croydon was a little bit of a pain, but yeah, it, it, it wasn't far. But Plough Lane was home. I mean, that's the problem, isn't it? You know, you, you, your home is your home. And, you know, even, you know, you, you take West Ham as an example, you know you move you're no longer at home it's going to take some getting used to and even if you moved into a new house that's yours that still takes some time so sharing your neighbor's house is always going to feel a little bit strange but you know I I, I, I don't think it's it's comparable to having to having to relocate and rename and rebrand that is that is a big no-no and, you know, not just for Wimbledon because it happened to them, but I think for all of us as English football fans, uh, the uproar is universal there. We, we can't deal with that stuff. It, it's, it's not something that computes with us. Yeah, I don't remember it being like a big deal at the time, particularly. I think because it came out of the Taylor report, you know, and obviously that was in the aftermath of Hillsborough. And, you know, it was pretty clear that, um, you know, there were good reasons for... Uh, needing um, all-seater stadiums in English football in the top flight um, and that that ground obviously you know was essentially a non-league ground and um, th- you know they obviously hadn't had the time or the money or the infrastructure to be able to uh, you know to update it in in time and it was kind of move or be relegated so I mean I, I kind of think that, that that it was a bit of a no-brainer for them really to uh to move down the road. I, th- I did read when we were re- researching for this that um, you know uh, the they did actually announce um, sometime in 1989 that they were actually um, you know seeking planning permission for an all-seater stadium in Merton, but um, uh, you know nothing ends up coming of it. Um, and uh, and I guess it it kind of became a bit like one of those things where um, you know. It, it ends up being a bit of a battle with the council where you're constantly looking for a site to build something. I think, you know, Everton have been going through something similar, haven't they? 
um, in in Liverpool. Like you just constantly kind of looking for sites to to build on because the original just isn't kind of suitable to kind of expand or whatever. And then it that's that's kind of how they ended up in the kind of MK Dons mess. But um, you know, it's probably a story for another time. You sort of end up with two kind of levels of insecurity, whereas it was an unavoidable situation. I think we'll all kind of agree on that. But you ended up with a long term instability, which probably leads to that move or, or people feeling that move was necessary in, in the business uh, environment around the club. But also you get the short term insecurity where having gone through the ranks and been very hard to beat at Plough Lane, you get that season where they go through three managers in a year and start to fall down the league. So I think they start out with Ray Harford. Peter Wyth has a short spell, but he lasts a, a couple of months. And by the end of the year, Joe Kinnear is in charge. And Joe Kinnear is really the man who will manage them through most of the rest of the decade. And when he has his health problems, that's eventually when they'll they'll fall down. But they do finish around the kind of bottom half of the table. And it's starting to look for a couple of years as if they're going to, as all clubs do, you know, go through this cycle and fall back down the league. But then the year that we kind of look at here comes along and they actually go great guns they rebuild the squad and all of a sudden they're finishing in the not only in the top half but really pushing for the those top places yeah it's interesting is that you get that sort of you know that dynamic duo of sam hamam as chairman who was a very charismatic figure wasn't he with along with 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 joe Kinnear. and i guess for younger listeners that only remember joe Kinnear as as part of the uh, newcastle uh cockney mafia johan kebab yeah, saying rambling things on on radio stations. You know, he he was, um, and I guess at a time when the Premier League was basically all you know really all English or Scottish managers, really wasn't it? Um, and he was a you know a young coach at the time, and he just got them playing. You know, they had some canny buys. I think Dean Holdsworth came from Brentford, if I remember rightly, and they that sounds they, right, yeah, and they picked up. Uh, Efren Okoku as well from Norwich who'd you know he'd been very very good there and and Wimbledon picked him up and he he started to to uh to, to score goals for them as well um maybe that was the season afterwards actually but you know talk about the kind of players they picked up they actually were in the transfer market they were quite quite sensible you know they 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 worked within their budget and and you know they have like sort of some homegrown players like John Scales who um, you know, they managed to sort of end up selling to Liverpool for a lot of money. Um, and yeah, they, they just become a, uh, a really kind of, you know, dynamic uh, front foot football team. Um, and they're no longer, you know, just punting it up and uh, letting John Fashney win headers. You know, they become uh, a lot more kind of multifaceted by that, albeit still playing very much a 4-4-2. Yeah, it was quite direct, but they had that knack now rather than, as you say, lumping up to the striker. It tended to be a much more modern looking, in a sense, move where it was direct into the corner and then people would work the channels and then you get the cross in and there's this uh, attempt to put pressure on the goalkeepers. And the one thing that stands out thinking back is not just that pushing the ball into the corners and pressing hard that way, but that kind of harrying of anyone that was on the ball. So... Although there's an awful lot of stuff that you would never see in the modern game, like Vinnie Jones kicking people at the hip level, there's also a lot of stuff that actually has stood the test of time and come back round in the last 10 years. So they're a curious mix of the old and the new, this Wimbledon team. 
He had Robbie, yeah. Robbie Earl as well, like bombing into the box late, that kind of trademark run, and he was, you know, he was always good fun to watch. Frank Lampard before Frank Lampard. Yeah, Robbie Earl was my favourite player in this uh, Wimbledon team. So yes, he's a, same as, for me. Yeah, uh, just some of the stuff that he could do because he was. You could be suckered into thinking he was just this really powerful midfielder arriving from deep and just kind of like knocking defenders out of the way. But actually, you look at some of the caresses that he could do with the ball as well. And he was he could play both sides of it like that. He was just a superb player and really put a lot of extra flair in. And this was a point where you couldn't just bulldoze people anymore. You know, the good Taylor teams, yes, they were direct, but they still had you know, the likes of a John Barnes at Watford, say. And, you know, who could do that a little bit extra? It was David Platt in his Villa team that could bring a bit more. It was Robbie Earl, I think, in this Wimbledon team. Yeah, yeah, he was excellent player, really fun to watch, really good player. And, you know, arguably a player that, that could, have, could have stepped up another level, you know, I think. Ends up playing for Jamaica, didn't he? Yeah, he played for Jamaica Jamaica in the World Cup. Didn't he go to the World Cup with them when they when they qualified for the World Cup? Yeah, yeah. Um, But yeah, I mean, you know, an England cap wouldn't have been wouldn't been out of the question there, especially that little bit. um, It it was that a little bit, little bit before that golden age of England midfielders. But yeah, he was fantastic football to watch and yeah one, certainly one of my favorites in, in when and when i'd go and watch wimbledon back at that time he hadn't signed yet for the club but i'm guessing there's a, a bit of a connection here because not only did robbie earl go to the 98 world cup with jamaica but so did fellow wimbledon player uh, marcus gale who was going to arrive a year or so down the line i think from there so uh, i don't think he would arrive just yet or if he had he wasn't quite the regular that he would go on to be but uh, that jamaican contingent at wimbledon went on to be one of the most uh, kind of iconic things about the club yeah, yeah. They, they obviously had a word with um with jackie charlton about about ireland hadn't they well yeah we could do that as well yeah, he signed in, in 94, uh, Marcus Gale, I think. But yeah, he, he, I mean, again, like exciting, exciting player, very tricky on the ball. And and I guess that's the thing, isn't it? Is that, uh, it, you know, the era of football that it was, you know, you, you kind of had you know, a solid back four, um, you know, you kind of very much, your your kind of wingers were still very much expected to do both jobs. So, you know, they expected to track back and, and go forward um and you know the uh you tended to have one kind of uh yeah one kind of hold up player and one person kind of coming off and so yeah you had Holdsworth as a as a poacher um and you know and sort of fashion was still there um as the uh as the target man at least initially very much a nine and ten isn't it yeah when when did he go to villa Sanchez, so fast it wasn't long after this, was it? Yeah, not long after this at all. So the ninety three ninety four season finishes, and in the following summer, he finally gets his his big multi million pound move, which uh, baffled me at the time, and I, I, I still can't explain it anymore. To be honest, um, <laughs> he was getting on a bit by then, wasn't he? Not only was he getting on a bit, but he was not the right sort of player for a Ron Atkinson team, I don't think, and it didn't work. He was badly injured soon after and it ended up being a couple of million quid wasted but he always did the job for Wimbledon so it, it's kind of one of those things where I don't think it, it suited anybody that transfer uh, other than maybe the fact they had a couple of million quid to play with and I think uh, who did they bring in a couple of other strikers who probably served them a bit longer for being all that much younger not big squads uh, you know at that time either 
you know um if if you kind of look at, at, at that Wimbledon team like it was a pretty settled side you know, you're not talking about an era of squad rotation. Um, it's very much, uh, you know, uh, a team that, that knows how to play, goes out and plays. It's interesting what you said about, you know, the, the balls into the channels, like a lot of, um, you know, mid-table teams in the Premier League started using that tactic, almost like a wide target man, like leaving the space for the midfielders to kind of like close in. Mm. Yeah, and one of the things that they had was, although... I remember it being a bit lopsided because I don't remember the left back doing this ever so much. And and I don't really remember there being a stable left back in the same way. But I've this litany of images of Warren Barton bombing on in my head. Uh, they may have been quite solid at the back with everybody else, but he was had a license to get forward and uh, and tended to use it, uh, uh, all kinds of things. So you could get these overloads as well down that, that right hand side. And I think that's probably what attracted him to, to Kevin Keegan in the long run. Yeah, he did love a bomb down, and that that nineties hair flowing as he went was always always good for a good for a little watch. That I was I was a big fan of Warren Barton. I always I always thought we should have signed him as the at Leedix and replacement. Leedix, I just went on and on, didn't he? In the yeah, end, he did. Of, did didn't need a replacement till like Lauren came along. Yeah, so um, you know it was that it, Barton was always that one player that I always looked at in that team and thought. I'd fancy him at Arsenal, and yeah, very good player. It was, I guess, Effort Koku they bought to replace uh, Fashionu, wasn't it? Which yeah, uh, yeah pretty much right, right yeah. for like, isn't it? <laughs> ends up uh, ends up being a good buy. That I mean, Koku is a bit more coach than Fashionu to be yes, fair to him. Yeah. Um, also, have you ever heard like, Effort Koku uh, do any football punditry on TV? He's pretty, he's pretty good. He kind of deserves to get on TV a bit more. <laughs> Funnily enough. I can't um, say I have. <laughs> uh, but um, I forget what it was I saw him. I think it was like, maybe it was Sky's like coverage of the championship or something. I can't remember. Um, but I remember being like thinking, who's that? And then I saw it as Effin and I was like, oh, here we go. There's a name from the past. So it was great though when you kind of look at, um, you know, squads of of the past and they're just all these kind of like, you know, early Premier League names that you'd forgotten about, like, you know, Steve Anthropus and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like, it just brings back like this kind of, you know, heady, more innocent times to think about like, you know. Stuart Castle died, remember him? You know, Gary Blissett. <laughs> it's just like, wow, you know, this really was a time. I mean, you obviously got players in there as well that would end up being important later on, you know, some like Neil Ardley who... Mm you know, was probably, you know, only a squad player at this point. But then in Wimbledon's kind of later, you know, later years would, um, you know, would end up being a key player for them. You know, Neil Sullivan doesn't take over from Hans Seegers until maybe even a couple of seasons after this. But um, of course, then he goes, you know, goes to... uh, Gets lost in the net first. Don't forget him getting lost in the net. And then... um... (laughs) Yeah, but obviously he becomes he becomes Spurs' keeper under, you know, yeah. under uh, well first George Graham and then Glenn Hoddle and um, and, and yeah, you know he had a he had a, a good a good a good spell with us, yeah. But I yeah, think, I mean, I think the big the big one from that team who was coming through, who for me, you know, going down there every week and you know watching him play, you know, probably a year or two later when I was going quite a lot is is Chris Perry coming through. Chris Perry uh, yeah. is a fantastic centre half, really, really good centre half. He, they absolutely adored him there in the mid nineties, and 
I was sad when he went to Spurs because that meant I couldn't like him anymore. <laughs> but, you know, Neil's had that a lot worse than me, so I'm not going to moan too much. Yeah, sign any decent playmaker that I like, Arsenal, sign just to, <laughs> just to annoy me. So, yeah, Perry's just, uh, as you say, a kid at this point, but he's coming through. There's a lot of uh, optimism about his future. He's been kept out mainly by Scales, who is, as, as you say, on the verge of that big transfer to Roy Evans, Liverpool, which I think we spoke about at the end of last season. Injuries mainly are why they never really worked out for him there. And then Scott Fitzgerald, uh, Weirdly, one of those names that for most people is probably reduced now to a sticker in a Premier League album. <laughs> um, but that, that duo kept him came out at the time. But there's another name that I came across in doing the research for this that I didn't know that was let go and not really given a fair crack with uh, with this Wimbledon team. I had no clue that they were where Steve Finnan started his career. I that was news to that. me. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a weird that. one. Yeah. Yeah. They let him go to Wellington, then he built his way back up and ended up winning the, the Champions League. So there's... Uh, there's a lot of uh, little interesting sidelines off this team. And, uh, you know, you should probably should say as well, right, you know, Hans Siegers was, was a really good keeper as well. And, um, you know, I mean, yeah, yeah, he made like almost 300 appearances for them. Like kind of um, one of those honest early Premier League foreign pros, you know what I mean? Like that kind of helped build the league. You know, they weren't like the big flashy signings like, you know, your Bergkamps and your Cantonars and, and your Zolas, but um, but you know the sort of the Hans Seegers and the and the Eric Torsvets and you know like just these these kind of uh, players from Northern Europe that that kind of were sort of exotic for the time period and um, you know I always find them very memorable for that reason. They stood out, didn't they? That was the the thing. Anyone with a remotely uh different kind of upbringing in teams of 10 Englishmen you know they, they stood out so much more so you just kind of remember them but there was also a, a tendency for them to be goalkeepers I recall he was he was one of many obviously you mentioned Tors Vett at, at Tottenham there was um a year or so later they'd be Karin at Chelsea yeah that's right and yeah there Chucky was just, Bottoms yes yeah. Chucky yeah. Bottom keepers. yeah so yeah it was uh and it just the, the main thing I think he's probably remembered for now is the the way it ended at Wimbledon, which was with him getting caught up in that betting scandal that also helped push Fashionu out the door uh, with with Grobelar and, and all that stuff in the mid-90s, which was a sad way for it all to end. I'm not sure anything was ever proven against Seegers, but that's kind of what... Oh, apparently he was found guilty in 1997. Now I'm just seeing it now, breaching betting regulations. So it's a sad way for it to end. But he was a really iconic player. And as, as you say, the, some of those early Premier League games, you watch the tapes back of them now, and they are basically like his highlight reel that he would use to get him a contract. They, are, they can be save after save after save. Yeah, I, th- I think, you know, you just, you know, you just needed a a really reliable keeper. If you could have one that you could, you know, stick in the team for, for 300 games, you know, you kind of got your money's worth because I can't think he cost very much. Yeah, busy, busy keepers, you know, at that end of the table, aren't they? It's, uh, you know, especially in the days before back passes as well, before back passes were outruled as well. He'd forever be going back to him, picking it up from his defender, throw it out to his defender, pick it up from his defender. I can, I can, I can, I can almost see uh, Wimbledon playing that game. Yeah, it's a very different way of being a goalkeeper than it is you know for that guy who only has to do one thing but he has to be alert for it and uh, it's, it's very different we see it with goalkeepers today at the bottom half of the table and just as much as you say it would have been even more so I, I think back then 
Was there a more iconic Wimbledon player than Vinny? Did, we, did he kind of like <laughs> sum them up somehow? Yeah, that was the crazy gang spirit, wasn't it? It was Vinny. Yeah, he, I mean, I think, you know, it's funny because I remember, like, obviously because of his antics, didn't he have the, the fastest yellow and the fastest red at one time? I feel like somebody might have um, taken one of those records off him now. I can't quite, I, I seem to see, remember seeing Granny that recently. Shaka. Probably Xhaka, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but he, there was this game for Sheffield, when he was playing for Sheffield United, and I think he was booked in about 38 seconds or something. And I, I, it did did detract from the fact that actually he was a better footballer than he's remembered, remembered as being. You know, he was a very good defensive midfielder. Like, you know, there was a reason why clubs always wanted to buy him. Because as well as being, I guess, box office, you know, like he he actually was 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 a good player at what he did. So so, yeah, he certainly kind of. When you think of that Wimbledon team, I think you think of him, him and Fashnu first, probably. I guess Wise is probably, rightly or wrongly, a bit more associated with Chelsea now because of the fact he then had such a successful time there in that sort of um, moneyed era just before Abramovich. So like the kind of the Harding money era Chelsea, like Wise was really important to that. But yeah, definitely Fashnu and, and Vinnie Jones, the first two I think of. Yeah, and Vinnie obviously, as you say, got to play for some quite good sides and he got to to play for Leeds under Wilkinson and they were going to go on to win the league a year or so after I think he had probably moved on to Chelsea I think by then but he also got to captain Wales you know this uh, granted that's not like captain captain them in the last 10 years at times Wales had a hard enough job getting the likes of getting actual Welshmen to turn out for them so um that was that was pretty difficult but at the same time it's not something they give to just anybody you know they can they can call up actual Welshmen they well, don't you go, know that, yeah. that team, that mid-90s Welsh team underachieved, really, didn't it? Because it was, you think about it, you had the tail end of Ian Rush. You had Ryan Giggs in his absolute pomp. You know, you had Gary Spears. You know, Mark Hughes. You know, they weren't, they weren't fielding a bunch of mugs, you know. No, you had, no. You had the tail end of Southall in goal as well. You, you know, it's funny because you just, you used to look at those, those Wales and Scotland teams in particular and just think like, why aren't you better? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like I mean, when you look you, at the players individually. You, you're talking the era while where they were still strong part of the Premier League. Like we're saying, it, it, we're we're on the verge of the big foreign invasion here. But you know, we're talking at a time where, uh, as Neil was saying, you know, you, you you get your exotic Northern Europeans who, who come through, and you know, aside from that, it, it's all the home nations, isn't it? So. I'd say there's certainly a, a a higher percentage of good Welsh players playing in that Premier League at that point than there are now. Mm. Yeah, I think there was two things. One is that they was they were skewed towards the forward positions, so they didn't have an awful lot at the back other than aging players that they were kind of relying on. And the other is they couldn't always rely on getting the likes of the Ryan Giggs is out. And it's one of the common complaints in Wales that if Giggs had wanted to play for Wales the same way that Gary Speed did, they would have qualified for things a lot sooner. Uh, whether that's true or not is something that you'd probably have to ask Ryan Giggs. But Yeah, it's a bit like um, Bale, you know, grows about 10 feet when he puts in a Wales shirt. Um, whereas, yeah, Giggs never kind of... Never he probably used bothers. it as an excuse to go out shagging other birds. <laughs> <laughs> I think honest, Ferguson, right, I'm away from home. Right, off, off we go. 
Well, I think Ferguson famously didn't like his players playing for England either, did he? I mean, so yeah. I think, you know, he did his best to make all international managers' lives difficult. I seem to remember, like, him having a furious argument with Gus Hiddink about Yapstam at one point, you know? So, yeah, I guess that was just Fergie, wasn't it? I mean, he had gigs from the very beginning, so he probably indoctrinated him into not, not enjoying the idea of international duty from the very start. But we digress. We do, we do. I'm just going to tie us back round because, uh, as well as Robbie or the other player that I was a really big fan of, and it's, I've come to appreciate him a lot more in, in later life, if you like, but uh, it was, was Holdsworth. I was a big, big fan of uh, Holdsworth because he just seemed to have almost everything to his game and be really kind of underappreciated. And he was doing it again for Bolton years later. And as we just uh, found out just before he came on. He obviously went back to Wimbledon during some of those distressed times and and turned out for them as a very much an old pro. He must have been pushing it. Uh, yeah, as well, did and, as well. Yeah. So I just wanted to give a, an, a last shout out to uh, <laughs> to Dean Holdsworth. One of those shout out for Dean Holdsworth, who actually once uh, true story. This one, um, I was walking to my mate's house down uh, Croydon Road between Mitcham and Croydon, and as you do, you pass a like pedestrian crossing, you press the button even though you're not crossing to stop the car that's coming along. And uh, it was Dean Holdsworth in a convertible who got rather angry at me for pressing <laughs> the button, which was fantastic. Classic moment. They also had injury cover the following year after this. So we're getting into the later Premier League kind of run, I guess, but injury cover for a month off Peter Shilton. So it was, in a sense, that was one of the things I enjoyed about Wimbledon is they were capable of doing mad things that you didn't expect like 40 odd year old peter shilton coming in for an extra couple of games if there was something strange that was going to happen for a while there it was going to happen at wimbledon and then they when they did spend big money they did the most wimbledon thing ever and they spent it on john hartson and you couldn't imagine a more wimbledon player than john hartson um (laughs) you know what i mean it's a bit like well yeah wimbledon are going to finally spend big to try and get out of trouble and they spend it on a big welsh target man yeah it's one of those things where if they bought someone on the cheap, it tended to work out quite well. So you think of buys like Ivan Leonardson for buttons, basically. And he obviously he went on to have a really good Premier League career. He was still playing for Villa in like 2003, I think, uh, almost 10 years later. I think Goodman cost them half a million quid. And, you know, he was another target man for them, but more than repaid the kind of investment. As we said, Akuka was a bit of a bargain buy. I don't think he cost... Uh, I don't think he cost a million quid. Uh, obviously, Norwich were in that weird position where they had to sell at that point, but that doesn't make it any worse a deal from from Wimbledon's point of view. So, it, again, one of those sides that maybe were better off buying in the the bargain bucket, if you like. Yeah, I think you see. I mean, you see that nowadays with Burnley, don't you? Like, you know, whenever whenever Burnley have spent money on a player, they've always been a, a corner aside. They've always been like a massive flop. And it's kind of, it's almost as if, like, if you're not, like, a kind of hard-bitten Lancastrian, you're probably not going to play well for Burnley. You know, or maybe if you're Irish, you'll get away with playing for Burnley. But but they do they do just seem to have, like, a, you know, a type of player that, that comes in. And I was going to say, like, I think if there's a modern equivalent of Wimbledon in the Premier League, it's got to be Burnley, hasn't it? Because it's like people sneer at them and, and you know, kind of, say that you know the football they play is unattractive but they just they don't really care you know like go to turf more and get an elbow in the face and shut up and then sean dyche will like you know say something funny in the press conference um 
and that's the kind of true spirit of Wimbledon for me. I guess Burnley are like a sensible Wimbledon. Does that make sense? They kind of everything they do makes a certain amount of sense within that kind of dogger framework. Whereas, as I say, Wimbledon were those one, one of those collections where you sort of just expected mad stuff to happen. I can't sum it up any better than like which football team had a player hosting gladiators. Well, of course <laughs> it was Wimbledon. <laughs> it just makes sense. Well, the fact that they, the fact that um, John Vashti was a big enough celebrity to host gladiators has always been a bit remarkable to me. And he's still like earning a crust off it now. Well, off the reruns. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, they often do like I don't know some sort of like gladiators reunion special or something, just so John Vashti can run out and shout a wooger at people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's a cra- crazy thing. Uh, I, I don't think he shouted a wooger at many people on the pitch, but you know, it's uh, funny how that goes, isn't it? It's I guess it's the. Uh, it's the UK equivalent of, you know, Ice Cube being in family comedies, so I guess, which is a strange thing to say, but there you go. Yeah, yeah, that's another one that we never kind of expected to happen, I think. Um, so just to kind of wrap this up then, because I think we're sort of running to, to an end. How big an achievement was it when we think of all the the ways the deck is stacked against clubs like Wimbledon for them to finish in the top half the number of times they did where the number of transfers that they made over a million quid were probably you countable on one hand how big of an achievement was it to just repeatedly finish not just in survival mode but in the top half it's incredible isn't it like what was their average attendance about ten thousand. you could probably could, count them when you were there yeah it couldn't have been much more than that um you know so they weren't you know they were never getting much revenue you know, you're talking the early days of the Premier League as well, so it's not like the absolute crazy money that it is now. You know, so they were dealing with a shoestring budget, you know, against, you know, very well-established giants of the game. Um, and I guess the deck isn't stacked quite in the way that it is now in some way. I mean, it's an interesting question, actually. I was I was thinking about this the other day. I don't think there was ever a situation where it looked like, you know, a team was playing football from a completely different planet. Like, you know, when City play, you know, Watford, it, you might as well be watching teams in, you know, separated by three divisions. And even when United were at their sort of, you know, that point where it's like the Mike Tyson, you were beaten before you got in the ring kind of thing with United. You know, the football they were playing, however, the style of football they were playing, you wouldn't have said it was markedly different to to what the rest of the league were playing. They just had better players. Um, so it's interesting to think about, is there a bigger gap now between the bottom half of the table and the top half of the table? Or was there, was there a bigger gap back then? And I think the difference is, is that the unfashionable clubs or the mid to lower table clubs in the Premier League in the early to mid 90s they all they all had to go so you know it, it wasn't like they they put 10 behind the ball and were timid and didn't want to come out and play they you know they would rather try and get a result even if it meant they got picked off and I think that's that's the difference and I think the thing with Wimbledon was they were always bold enough to stand toe to toe with whoever they were playing you know rough them up a bit but also play some good stuff as well. You know, like they had uh, a certain physicality to their game, but under Kinnear, like they could 
they could play as well. So it was a huge achievement. Um, there's a very roundabout way of answering the question, but it was an absolutely massive achievement for them to do what they did for so long. And you know what? It, you felt like they would never go down. And, and when they did, it was really only because they made that absolutely disastrous Egil Olsen appointment, you know, who had done well with Norway, basically playing kick and rush. But that was really 10 years before. And, you know, by the time he got to Wimbledon, it, you know, the, the world had moved on, right? You're talking what, like 2000, was it 2000, 2001 they went down? Um, it was 2000. It was the last day of the season, thanks to a David Weatherall goal that kept up Bradford against Liverpool. It was that game. And if, oh, yeah. if uh, I believe if that goal hadn't gone in, then they would have stayed up on goal difference, I think. Yeah, you never you never thought they'd go. And then when they finally did, it was kind of quite surprising. And I guess like many of those teams that dropped out of the Premier League at the end of the 90s, you kind of you thought you'd see them back before too long. And then obviously everything happened that happened. Yeah, and I don't think we're going to go into all that because it's not really the the day for it. It's a whole other story. And yeah. it's a much more unpleasant story. We want to kind of focus, I think, on yeah, the Wimbledon that we remember. Times. We want to focus on the Wimbledon that we remember from the 1990s. So rather than go into all that, let's cut it off there. We'll, we'll cut it off and just like finish with some positive thoughts on Wimbledon, some final memories, if you like. Just, you know, so many. But, um, you know, to... I think my favourite day at Wimbledon was, you know, when Wimbledon were were starting to to decline a bit. But I just remember being 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 at the, at the game where where Spurs funked them six two to pretty much stay up uh, late on in the season. And every time Spurs scored, bearing in mind they scored six, more Spurs fans would uh, <laughs> would jump up and get escorted out, and you know. Frog marched along behind a goal at the front of the stand where I stood there abusing them all as they went by, getting kicked out. Fun times. Remember that game? Was that was that like a Jürgen Klinsmann hat trick? Klinsmann scored four, I think. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it was like the Klinsmann's second second time. Second coming, yeah. Yeah, it was uh the the Christian Gross the second season. Yeah, yeah the second coming and you were in real trouble all season yeah. and there was also yeah. a four one against Palace like I think the, maybe a week or two weeks before that which was kind of you know that first thing of like okay now we're probably all right now yeah it it was it, it was just so good. and and this is the scene Arsenal were about to wrap up the double at this point so it's late season we're on an absolute charge and I just I enjoyed the hell out of that game. It was, it was so fun. But yeah, that's so many fun nights at, at, at Selhurst, so many fun days at Selhurst. Um, you know, classics like I talked about as well in the Arsenal episode we did uh, a couple of years back, the old uh, floodlight uh, failure one and stuff like that. So many good days at Selhurst. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think I'll, that 88 cut final, I think will always stay with me just as a, you know, an eight year old kid that's, you know, kind of mad about the game and starting to learn more about it, you know, like uh, that Liverpool team was incredible, you know, player for player, you know, I mean, you talk about like John Barnes and Peter Beardsley at their absolute best. Um, John Aldridge has scored a million goals that season. And the idea that this basically bunch of guys that probably, you know, were carpenters and, you know, mechanics 
you know four or five years before where were beating them was, was was really incredible like the the best and save and you know that Laurie Sanchez header as well like is you know still unbelievable to watch that like what a moment and you know the whole just the whole feeling of it you know the John Motson commentary and the old Wembley with the towers and just the whole sense of occasion around it was was pretty incredible and you know in this kind of I guess you know, in modern games, it quite often feels, you know, quite corporate and quite washed over. And, and you know, for that reason, like, I really hope Burnley do stay up because you need a team like that, you know, because Brentford and Bournemouth, right, obviously they're, they're amazing stories in their own right. Um, but they're also a bit nice. <laughs> <laughs> and I think you kind of want a bunch of pirates in the league, at least at least one team that's a bunch of pirates in the league to just annoy everyone. Um, and Wimbledon not only did that, they managed to also kind of put on a, a bit more style as the kind of, you know, as the 80s turned into the 90s and um, punched them off their weight for a long time. And I guess, you, you know, that kind of, it can't last forever because this is a money-driven game, ultimately. But, you know, they they... Gave's a lot of fun along the way. I think I'll finish with my kind of last memory. It's one-off game, and I'm, I'm going to do it a little bit different because it's it's we've spoken about their home and how important all that was, and it's actually an away game that sticks with me. Uh, it's at Arsenal, funnily enough. So, as you might remember this one, uh, they went one nil down. I, I can't remember who got the Arsenal goal, but this is the typical Wimbledon thing, and it's always what it stands out to be is they were never dead they were never beaten uh, away from home at Arsenal obviously a much bigger club much more kind of high profile much more expected of them uh, they equalized through Robbie Earl with just kind of a typical kind of a you know, header in the box he's just in the right place he reads the game really well uh, Holdsworth then gets a second so they've turned the game on its head and then Robbie Earl just scores this wonderful third goal to kill it where Seaman's rushing out and he just dinks it over his head and it was just that goal is one of those that will can I just always remember it and to do it away at Arsenal, who were, you know, winning trophies galore in the in the early nineties. Yeah, superb. So Yes, I do remember that game. Absolutely. <laughs> and yeah, no, it, it it does sum them up though. They 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 weren't scared of anyone, were they? You know, they they weren't gonna respect reputations. They were just gonna go out there and do what they do. And, you know, it worked so well for them for a very long time. And part of the reason that they were so much fun for everybody else is that you would have that day where they absolutely turned your team on, on, on its head. They did it to Villa so many times. Uh, and that was what was made it fun for everybody else. The, the weeks that it wasn't your team were great and they were brilliant for that. Okay. I think we're going to wrap that one up there. We'll be back next week with another look at one of our favorite teams. It's one very close to Maz's heart next time out. We hope you'll join us for that until next time. Take care. We'll see you soon. If you enjoyed this week's show, you can find more of us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Acast, or you know, whatever your regular podcast provider is. Don't forget to rate and subscribe. You can also keep up with us on Twitter at 4ATBPOD, 4 at the back pod. Thanks for listening. <laughs>